Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. President Zelensky of the Ukraine addressed the U.S. Congress earlier today where he pleaded for a no-fly zone and for more military aid to his war-torn country. Today on Sojourner Truth, we get an update on and analysis of the war in the Ukraine. Our guest is Bryce Green, who has written about the war and about the Ukraine for fairness and accuracy in the media known as FAIR. And as a convoy of truckers demanding an end to the COVID-19 federal health emergency continues to clog traffic on highways circling Washington, D.C., the United States is indeed preparing to do just that, end the health emergency by mid-April. But what will its impact be to millions on Medicaid and to resources people have now taken for granted? We speak with journalist Libby Watson, who is the author of Sick Note, a newsletter about U.S. health care, and our weekly Earth Minute with the Global Justice Ecology Project returns. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed a joint session of Congress asking for help, either a no-fly zone or the transfer of fighter jets to Ukraine. Is there a lot to ask for to create a no-fly zone, zone over Ukraine to save people? Is this too much to ask? Humanitarian no-fly zone, something that Ukraine, uh, that Russia would not be able to terrorize our free cities. If this is too much to ask, we offer an alternative. You know what kind of defense systems we need, S-300 and other similar systems. You know how much depends on the battlefield, on the ability to use aircraft, powerful, strong aircraft. Uh, aviation to protect our people. Zelensky recalled attacks on the U.S. as he made his case. Pearl Harbor and the September 11th attacks, both he said examples of when innocent people were attacked by air, as they have been in Ukraine for the past three weeks. Zelensky used the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream saying he had a need to protect Ukrainian skies. After showing a short video with graphic scenes of destruction and devastation, Zelensky switched to English to make an appeal to President Biden. And as the leader of my nation, I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Slava Ukraini. 
Biden has turned aside calls for a no-fly zone or the transfer of military jets from neighboring Poland as the U.S. seeks to avoid a direct confrontation with Russia. He has warned such confrontation could lead to World War III. Biden is expected to deliver his own address today in which he's expected to announce an additional $800 million in security assistance to Ukraine. On the battlefront, Russia's military forces blasted Ukraine's capital region and other major cities. Russia signaled some optimism about ongoing negotiations between the two. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov welcomed President Zelensky's comment yesterday that Ukraine realized it could not join NATO. Lavrov said what he called a businesslike spirit was starting to service in the talks, giving hope the two sides can agree. He added that a neutral status for Ukraine was being seriously discussed in connection with security. Security guarantees. Russia's chief negotiator said the signs were discussing a possible compromise idea for a future Ukraine with a smaller, non-aligned military. A different story from Ukraine's presidential advisor. He denied the Russian claims that Ukraine was open to adopting a model of neutrality comparable to Sweden or Austria. The United Nations says the number of people fleeing Ukraine amid Europe's heaviest fighting since World War II has surpassed 3 million. Sarah Bloom Raskin has withdrawn her nomination to the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors after West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin joined with all Senate Republicans to oppose her nomination. That opposition doomed her prospects for winning confirmation in the evenly divided Senate. Republicans opposed Raskin on the grounds that she has been an outspoken supporter of having the Fed consider the threat of climate change and its regulation of banks. Manchin, who's long been a strong advocate for energy companies, and a top recipient of donations from the fossil fuel industry expressed similar views this week. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren tweeted that Raskin had the courage to call out the financial risks of climate change, so the fossil fuel industry and special interests brought her down. It's shameful, Warren said. The Federal Reserve is expected to increase its key short-term rate by a quarter of a percentage point today. That would be the first increase since 2018 and likely the first in a series of hikes. The Fed is trying to slow the economy enough to tamp down the high inflation sweeping the country while avoiding triggering a recession. Pfizer and its partner BioNTech have asked U.S. health officials to authorize an additional booster dose of their COVID-19 vaccine for people over 65. They say data from Israel suggests older adults would benefit. The Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would have to approve the request. It's not clear how soon they might act. Vice President Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, has tested positive for the coronavirus. Harris tested negative but has curtailed her schedule as a result of Emhoff's positive test. Harris tweeted last night that Doug is doing fine and we are grateful to be vaccinated and boosted. Harris had appeared with President Biden and mingled with lawmakers at an event yesterday afternoon, marking the signing of the $1.5 trillion government funding measure. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are now going to continue our coverage of the war in the Ukraine. Ukrainian president, as you heard in our news headline, Zelensky, has now wrapped up his address to the U.S. Congress earlier this morning. This, as the world is horrified by the suffering brought on by war, a war visible to those who have access to television, 
horrors that are part not only of this war, but any war. But how it is covered varies depending on who the combatants are and the reasons for the war. Russia, as we know, has illegally invaded the Ukraine, and their demands include a return to the NATO-Russian Founding Act, which was signed in 1997. In that act, according to the Associated Press, Russia agreed that Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic would join NATO, and that in the foreseeable security environment, NATO would not move forward with additional permanent stationing of substantial combat forces in the territory of new members. Russia has said that NATO has broken this agreement by increasingly closing in on Russia's borders. Russia does not want Ukraine as part of NATO and wants Ukraine to withdraw its forces from NATO's eastern flank. Meanwhile, Western powers are claiming that the NATO-Russian Founding Act that was signed in 1997 is now null and void. Why? because of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. But NATO's violation of that act is one of the key reasons Russia gave for the invasion. Go figure that one. On Tuesday, President Zelensky said that the Ukraine realized it could not join NATO, according to press reports. That statement gave hope for some room to negotiate an end to the war. The Ukraine not entering NATO, NATO, a 30-nation military alliance, was one of the demands of Russia. This new development however, begs the question as to why Ukrainian President Zelensky did not make this offer when it was known that Russian troops were building up at the Ukrainian border and they were demanding that the Ukraine not enter NATO. Uh, rather than waiting until after Russia has invaded the Ukraine, causing the loss of life and injury to Ukrainian civilians. The UN, as of today, says 691 civilians have been killed and 1,143 injured. Also, as of today, more than 3 million Ukrainians, mainly women and children, have been forced to flee. Why wasn't this war avoided? Why wasn't this suffering avoided? Could Russia's illegal invasion of the Ukraine have been avoided? What are and were the geopolitical concerns of the United States and Western powers? What role has the U.S. played historically in pushing Ukraine into the Western sphere of influence? What role did the National Endowment for Democracy and the International Monetary Fund play in the 2014 U.S. back coup known as the Maiden Revolution? that ousted the democratically elected Ukrainian president, Viktor uh, Yanukovych, who was said to be pro-Russia. What are the Minsk agreements and why were they broken? While no doubt the brutal invasion by Russia of the Ukraine is illegal, what role did the US, NATO, and Western powers play in fomenting the conflict? Should they be let off the hook? Could this entire conflict um, that now has the potential of growing into World War III could have been avoided and what is needed now to end the war. Let us go to a, a clip now about the White House being under pressure from members of Congress as well as from Ukrainian President Zelensky. 
The White House facing growing pressure to supply the Ukrainian military with Soviet-made weapons. This is coming as the Biden administration is wrestling with getting more military aid to Ukraine without triggering a wider war. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is live in Brussels. This is really the measure. This is the balancing act that they're doing, Natasha. Exactly, Brianna. This is an effort by members of Congress and by President Zelensky of Ukraine to pressure the White House to get those heavier Soviet-made weapons into Ukraine so that Ukraine can essentially take back control of its airspace. They want S-300 surface-to-air missiles. They want those MiG-29 fighter jets. But there are a couple of problems here. The first is that the White House and NATO broadly are very concerned about what the transfer of those weapons into Ukraine might be, how, how those transfer of, transfer of weapons into Ukraine might be perceived by Russia, right? Whether Russia would view that as yet another provocation by the U.S. and NATO. The second problem is that they don't know yet where they're actually going to get these S-300 missiles from, because the U.S. does not actually have them. Those are in uh, some Eastern European countries, some Arab countries, and they would have to then backfill those missile systems. And we saw this problem play out last week uh, with the Polish uh, leaders saying that they could not provide these MiG-29 fighter jets to uh, Ukraine unless they were backfilled by the United States. So the State Department and the Pentagon, we are told, still trying to figure out how they could get uh, those missiles out of those countries and into uh, Ukraine. But, you know, one interesting facet of this, as we see Russia start to get closer and closer in their attacks to Poland, to NATO's borders, is that uh, the U.S. is telling Congress, U.S. officials are telling Congress that they do believe that still the, the vast majority of the weapons that they are sending into Ukraine is getting into uh, Ukrainian forces' hands, that they do believe this is successfully being transferred. But we're told that NATO, as an alliance as a bloc really has very little visibility into what is actually happening to those weapons uh, once they cross that border. What percentage of that weaponry is actually getting into Ukrainian forces' hands? And that is actually on purpose. NATO, as, an, as, as a bloc, has been in, has instructed the member countries not to share this information with each other in terms of the points of contact to get those weapons into Ukraine. And importantly, it maintains this aura of plausible deniability, right? NATO does not want to be seen as, as a bloc providing lethal equipment to uh, Ukraine. So they have not been serving this kind of coordinating function in terms of getting that weaponry into Ukraine, um, also for security reasons, right? So what we are kind of trying to figure out now is, and what the administration is trying to assess, is how is the best, what is the best way of getting these weapons into Ukraine, given the complexities, given the fact that Russia is targeting uh, now closer to, to the Polish border. And that is one of the things we believe that if President Biden does come here next week, does come to Brussels to meet with other NATO leaders, will be on the agenda, is while NATO as a bloc, of course, says that it is not providing these weapons to Ukraine uh, as a whole, the member countries, they will need to figure out the best way to keep this assistance flowing. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, of course, also coming to Brussels to discuss that uh, with uh, his counterparts here. Brianna. Interesting thought there that NATO is concerned that it doesn't want to be seen to be providing lethal equipment, but the United States is to be seen as providing this equipment. We'll see how all of that goes. I would like now to welcome our guest, Bryce Green, who has written about the war, has written about the Ukraine for fairness and accuracy in media fair. Their background has been challenging media bias since 1986. And he also was recently on FAIR's radio program. Bryce Green, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you for inviting me on. I'm happy to be here. Now, Bryce, you heard the the intro that I gave here, and in an article that you wrote, you talked about challenging the mainstream media using the word unprovoked when it comes to Russia's, everybody seems to agree, is illegal invasion of the Ukraine. What is your concern about the use of this term? In using it, it sort of whitewashes a lot of the history that the United States uh, or history of the United States pushing up against Russia's borders, ignoring Russia's uh, security concerns, ignoring Russian red lines, and ignoring even their own experts in finding good policy for how to engage with Russia. Um, and this has its roots in the end of the Cold War, where the United States was uh, the sort of unipolar country. It had the sole power in the world. Um, and it used this to expand NATO despite a promise to the to the Russians not to do so um, as part of a deal to like reunify uh, East and West Germany. Uh, they pledged to expand. The quote was not one inch east of Germany, but they ended up expanding it. And this went against uh, even the policy prescriptions of the top uh, diplomats in United States foreign policy. George Kennan, the architect of the post-war strategy of containment of the Soviet Union, he argued against this whole NATO expansion idea, saying that it would push Russia to feel like entrapped or encircled, and it would force them into some sort of reaction. And we don't want to do that. Uh, but we continue to you know, expand NATO into different countries, pushing up against uh, the former Warsaw Pact countries. Uh, and we also tried to pry Ukraine from the Russian sphere of influence through in the economic sphere. Um, we attempted multiple times to get the Ukraine to sign an IMF package before 2014, uh, and the 2014 overthrow came after President Yanukovych chose a Russian economic integration package uh, for going the IMF and snubbing the European countries. And so those protests started, and then uh, there was a leaked phone call showing that there were U.S. officials trying to rearrange the new government after this one had been overthrown. And again, this was before uh, the government had been overthrown. Uh, and then three weeks later, the Yanukovych was forced out. And then a few weeks after that, the new country uh, adopted the IMF loan package. It was a $28 billion loan. Uh, and so there's been a long history of the United States agitating to pull Ukraine from the Russian sphere of influence and add it to the Western sphere of influence. And this has been seen as provocative by the Russians. Um, and e even one of uh, the, the, the current CIA director, uh, he argued back in 2008 that if we keep pushing Ukraine to join our sphere of influence, if we exploit the divisions in that country, then that could grow into violence. And, that, and then Russia will be forced to intervene. And that's a decision that Russia does not want to have to make. But that's exactly what we did. And after the 2014 overthrow, there was a civil war, and Russia intervened in that civil war, and uh, and that's sort of the set the table for the invasion uh, eight years ago. Right. And tell us a bit, you know, you refer to the invasion a while back. Tell us about this uh, 2014 uh, U.S. backed coup known as the, the Maiden uh, Revolution, the role that you mentioned, the International Monetary Fund. But what about the NED, the National Endowment for Democracy? A lot of people are not aware of the role uh, that they play. Tell us about that. Right. So the National Endowment for Democracy is one of the state 
State Department's tools for changing a country's politics and eventually enacting regime change. It does this by funding organizations and NGOs and opposition groups and media media operations uh, in order to push a country to uh, adopt more pro-Western policies. In fact, the Washington Post once described the National Endowment for Democracy as, quote, doing what the CIA used to do in private, but, you know, now only this time it's out in the open. Um, and so the NED had poured $5 billion into Ukraine since 1991, uh, before the 2014 coup, trying to build up a sort of constituency for United States policies, for IMF policies, for pro-NATO policies. Uh, and, and all of that came to a head after President Yanukovych rejected the EU-IMF deal and accepted the Russian deal. Uh, the, the protests, they were partially supported by these foundations that, uh, that were funded by the NED. And, in fact, you had U.S. officials going down to Ukraine, going down to the Maidan Square, uh, and, and handing out cookies to protesters, even getting up on stage and saying, the U.S. supports Ukraine. You need to, you know, change your economy, change your government. Uh, and then you have uh, that uh, the, the phone call between uh, Victoria Nuland and Jeffrey Pyatt, the, the, Ukraine, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, um, where they're talking about how they want to change the government. Uh, and, uh, and the fact that the new government directly enacted those policies and directly filled in those people who the Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt suggested, uh, that's clear evidence that the National Endowment for Democracy formula, this regime change formula, was once again successful. Going back to uh, 2014, so I'm a little hoarse here, the, the Minsk two accords that were signed a, a ceasefire, this goes back to the Ukraine's Donbass region that declared independence, and there was a, a referendum actually in, the, in that region, in, in the eastern uh, region that the West never really acknowledged, where the majority of people who speak Russian and who uh, voted to be autonomous and that autonomy was never really accepted. Tell us about this, uh, the Minsk II Accords and the fact that they were never really followed. Right. So in the wake of the 2014 overthrow, after the adoption of IMF policies and the adoption of some, some anti-Russian policies, the eastern regions of Ukraine, namely the Donbass, uh, they've always had closer ties to Russia because they're geographically closer, they're more family ties. And they actually voted for Viktor Yanukovych overwhelmingly in that area. And so when he was overthrown, they rightly felt that their rights had been undermined. And they started protesting. And the, Ukrainian, the new Ukrainian government started cracking down. And so those protests intensified. It grew into a civil war. Um, it was a very deadly civil war. Thousands and thousands of people were killed. Uh, but by the by mid 2015, uh, that civil war had sort of paused into a ceasefire, and one of the ceasefire agreements was called the Minsk Accords. Uh, there were there were two Minsk one and two, uh, but the Minsk two it basically said that well yes we've agreed that. Uh, these regions, these Donbass republics, are going to be autonomous to some degree, but they will be formally reintegrated into Ukraine's borders. Uh, and so there was a, a plan for elections and a plan for de demilitarization. 
Uh, and this was agreed upon by France, Germany, Russia, Ukraine, and the U.S. supported it. Uh, but the problem was that Ukraine never really implemented the agreements. They never put through the legislation in the parliament to formalize the autonomy of these regions. And therefore, these regions never demilitarized. They never uh, uh, were formally readopted into Ukraine. And so the, the, the conflict sort of simmered for years and years and years, for the last eight years. And throughout that time, more people have died than since before the ceasefire. So there's been a lot of violence going on on that on that front, and most of it, most of the victims were on the pro-Russian side. Um, and throughout this whole time, while the Ukrainians were refusing to implement it because of you know nationalist reasons, they didn't want to give up their their national territory, and they also feared that reintegrating this part could jeopardize their status with NATO. Um, but throughout this period, they the United States refused to push them to implement it. They refused to utilize the massive leverage that they have in the country to try and push for a peaceful settlement, keeping this war still still relatively hot. Uh, and so Russia, for its part, uh, they ha- their commitment to this really hasn't been tested, but they've, uh, they've supported it at least ostensibly. Um, and they refuse to recognize these republics as independent, waiting for them to implement the Minsk Accords. But after Ukraine refused to do that for eight years, and uh, decided to, you know, close, more closely integrate with NATO, more closely integrate with West, you know, have more uh, NATO exercises. Well, that's when you see Putin start to uh, build up the troops at the border. That's when you started seeing the media talk about an imminent invasion. But throughout this whole period, Putin was pretty clear about a, a path to de-escalation. He said that, well, if you guys agree to implement these Minsk Accords, if you guys agree that Ukraine will not be a part of NATO, uh, then we can. That's a that's a basis for a new European security arrangement, um, and that we can stop this whole NATO expansionary policy. Uh, but the United States, throughout this whole time, they refused to negotiate, just the same way they refused to uh, try to implement the Minsk Accords, and they refused to negotiate up to the point that Vladimir Putin invaded. Uh, in fact, the day before Vladimir Putin invaded, the United States cut off diplomatic ties, uh, all, all but ensuring that Putin would be more isolated. Uh, so throughout this whole entire period, from the 90s through the 2014 coup, through right now, the United States has been pushing an escalatory and hostile policy towards the Russians. Now, of course, none of this is to say that the Russian invasion is justified. It's it's illegal, it's violent, it's brutal, and it, it should be condemned. But to say that it is unprovoked leaves out all of that important history. And now you have, of course, Biden is, uh, President Biden is headed to Europe. He is under enormous pressure around this uh, no-fly zone. And there seems to be a, a lot of geopolitical uh, forces involved here because it does seem as though um, the West, the U.S. and the Western powers did allow this kind of civil war to continue um, in the, the Donbass region, as you say, refusing to 
to recognize the referendum that was taken. And then there's so much propaganda, Bryce, uh, coming on on both sides. And, you know, Pacifica, we here at Pacifica, Pacifica stands for peace. It was founded by a, a anti-war uh, campaigner, Lou Hill, in, in Berkeley, California. But you also find that people who try to bring out the other side of this war, because they're all usually both two sides, right, are often claimed, well, you're just pro-Russia or you're Putin's puppets or or some such, which is absolutely uh, not the the case here. But the the other thing too, I wanted to to touch on is the you know Russia is also uh, complaining about the weaponry um, that's deployed near uh, Russia, the U.S. global defense system um, that includes it located in Romania to be deployed in Poland, adapted for launching Tomahawk missile uh, strikes, and Russia is saying that this means that the the flight time to Moscow would only be seven to ten minutes. And one really has to ask the question, as as you do in in your writing, uh, Bryce, that if this were the reverse, if the United States was in a position of Russia placing uh, Tomahawk uh, missiles and, and other defense systems right up against its border, Border, let's say in Mexico or even north of the border in, in Canada. I've mentioned on this show before what happened with the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, for example. How do people think that the United States would respond. And as you say, it's, again, not to justify Russia's invasion at all, which is illegal, should be condemned, and Russia definitely should be pulling out. Uh, you know, but it does seem as though there are a lot of geopolitical uh, forces at work here that the public and certainly the main t mainstream media are not bringing out in terms of what is actually happening with this war, what, uh, you know, the, the forces underneath it happening in the first place, because, you know, you have NATO now saying, well, you know, the, the NATO-Russia founding act is null and void because Russia has invaded the Ukraine. But meanwhile, had they kept to that act, had uh, Zelensky said what he did on Tuesday when he knew Russian forces were building up at the border, would we see this loss of life? It does seem to me as though the Ukrainian civilians are being a pawn in what seems to be a proxy war uh, for a sphere of influence um, between, if you want to put it that way, the East and the West or Russia and, uh, you know, Western powers. And then, of course, the the specter of China and there being a Western interest in weakening um, Russia, Russia's impact on the on the global scale. Um, your thoughts on some of this? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're exactly right. Well, when when you say that the Ukrainians are being used as a pawn on this geopolitical chessboard, uh, one of the pieces I found in my research was uh, a December 2021 article called The Strategic Case for Risking War in Ukraine. And it was written by a, a researcher at the Atlantic Council. And for those of you who don't know, the Atlantic Council is essentially NATO's de facto think tank. Uh, and this article is pretty telling. It gave the argument that the United States should refuse to negotiate with Russia on their security concerns about the bases, about the missiles, about NATO expansion, uh, because Russia would have one of two options. 
they would either have to, A, back down and then look weak on the world stage, and this is good for the United States, or they would have to, or they would have to go to war. And if they go to war, this would also be good for the United States. And he gave three reasons for that. Uh, the first was that it would forge a, a pro-NATO, an anti-Russian consensus uh, all across Europe. Like, before this war, uh, people were t- asking questions about whether or not NATO was relevant, whether or not NATO should exist. Like, uh, and the, NATO was, had a real crisis of legitimacy. But a war, like what's going on right now, would reinvigorate NATO allies. It would give NATO a new reason for existing. Uh, the second reason he gave was that it would allow the United States to sanction Russia's economy and thus knocking out a major regional competitor on the, on the global economy. Um, and this was also good for the U.S. because uh, U.S. oil and gas companies could step in and fill the void and you know, gain record profits. So this would, also, this would also be a strategic goal for the United States. The other reason was that in the event of a Russian invasion, the U.S. has the opportunity to pour weapons into Ukraine and fund an insurgency that would bog down Russia in another Vietnam, or more accurately, another Afghanistan, uh, because it's their striking resemblance to the Afghan trap uh, that uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski laid for the Soviet Union in the 70s. Uh, in that, he funded radical Islamic uh, jihadis to run around Afghanistan and pull the Soviet Union into an intervention. And, you know, he's widely credited for overextending the Soviet Union and uh, causing its demise. Um, and you can see that, the, that this is clearly the, the United States policy, because back in 2019, there was a Pentagon-funded study called Overextending and Unbalancing Russia. And its policy prescriptions were that intervention in Ukraine was the most surefire way to overextend Russia. If we can continue to pour weapons in there, if we continue to try and pull Ukraine into the Western sphere of influence, this will be the most likely way to get Russia to have an intervention, to overextend itself and to unbalance itself. And that's exactly what's happening. And so, again, I think you're exactly right when you say the Ukrainians are being used as pawns in a geopolitical chessboard, in a proxy war, meant to destabilize Russia and meant to forge a a pro-NATO consensus. Right. And and as uh, Dr. Gerald Horn was on our show yesterday, we were discussing Ukraine, and he also pointed out how China um, is also, a message is also being sent to China in all of this. Um, But we're a bit out of time here, uh, uh, Bryce. We're going to be continuing to cover this. But, you know, Martin Luther King, when he came out against the war in Vietnam, and he talked about uh, the price of war. And just yesterday on our show, someone from the Quincy uh, Institute was talking about how the present U.S. military budget, which is now huge, the defense budget, is four times the cost of President Biden's Build Back Better Act, which would have um, extended uh, coverage in Medicare, would have uh, continued uh, child tax credit uh, for the most impoverished uh, children and and other uh, social programs. And we're told, well, there's no money for that, but billions of money can be found uh, for war. And the 
the shift that is happening now in Europe, where Europe itself is becoming militarized and Germany, you know, sending uh, weapons out. I mean, this is something that Germany never did before. So this is a whole militarization of um, Western powers in, in, in a way. And we have to look at who is gaining from that, who's making money from it and whose lives are being lost. So Bryce, we'll, we'll have you back. Thank you so much for what you've been writing and for your analysis. We appreciate you. Thank you, Bryce. Appreciate, appreciate. All righty. Uh, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to go now to our weekly Earth Minute. And coming up, um, the uh, Federal Health Emergency Act about to expire in mid-April. What does that mean for impoverished people? What does that mean for black and brown communities? What does this mean for Medicare? Uh, stay with us. We'll be right back. a chance and that people around the world are hoping uh, for peace. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org where there's a community calendar and other stories. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud today. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners to the in the great city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Germany. Um, we are now going to go to our weekly Earth Minute, which is back, and then Libby Watson is waiting in the wings to talk with us about Medicaid and the federal health emergency. Let's go to the Earth Minute. Despite public health and environmental concerns, the EPA has approved the mass release of billions of genetically engineered mosquitoes in California and Florida. This approval, which will be the biggest release of GE insects in the world, ignores growing concerns raised by scientists, public health experts, and environmental groups. The company Oxitec claims that GE mosquitoes will reduce incidence of mosquito-borne diseases. However, there is no public data available to support this. The EPA granted the company an experimental use permit to release mosquitoes in four California counties this summer and allows for a pilot program in Monroe County, Florida. According to Dr. Robert Gould, president of San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility, once released into the environment, genetically engineered mosquitoes cannot be recalled. The EPA sanctioned release of genetically engineered organisms with no transparency or proven risk assessment is criminal, threatening both human health and ecological ecosystems. For the Earth Minute and the Sojourner Truth Show, this is Teresa Church with Global Justice Ecology Project. 
All righty, and we now turn our attention uh, to Medicaid and the uh, the ending of the federal health emergency that was put in place under COVID. Um, you know, let us first go to a short clip about these truckers' protests uh, in Washington, D.C. So this morning, a convoy of vehicles is set to arrive here in Washington, D.C., for a planned protest against COVID-19 mandates, despite loosening restrictions nationwide. The People's Convoy, as it's called, an American offshoot of the Freedom Convoy that bottled up Canada's capital last month, stopped just outside the district in Maryland on Friday. The group has picked up hundreds of cars and trucks since beginning its trek across the country last week. The protest was organized by supporters of Donald Trump and opponents of vaccine and mask mandates. All righty. So even as a convoy of truckers continue attempts to snarl traffic in the nation's capital, demanding, by the way, an end to the federal health emergency due to the COVID-19 pandemic, millions of people in the United States who are on Medicaid, including six million children, will lose their health coverage once the federal emergency ends. Uh, this will impact the most impoverished um, who including black and brown communities who will be disproportionately impacted. In addition to the expanded uh, Medicaid program that was part of the federal health emergency, people t will lose uh, free face masks. Some supermarkets, you could pick up a free face ma mask there. The FDA will lose power to fast track authorization of COVID-19 vaccines, tests, and treatments. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will lose the authority to require face masks on public transportation, uh, this according to the Los Angeles Times. And additionally, protection for renters facing eviction will also be lost. And the use of government resources to get shots and drugs out to the population will no longer be able to be used. And it will impact the expansion of telemedicine, uh, including ordering insurers to pay for this service, insurers who previously were refusing uh, to do that. The Biden administration had hoped to continue many of these services, as he announced in his recent State of the Union address. But recently, Congress, in a bipartisan vote, stripped the funding that would have allowed President Biden's uh, COVID-19 plan, a vote that no doubt will be seen as a victory by those who oppose COVID vaccines and other measures. But the resulting broader impact of ending the federal health emergency, including the millions of poor and low wealth people, uh, that include, by the way, millions of children who will now use Medicaid and other health coverage, it's falling under the radar. And of course, uh, Medicaid was established um, uh, under the jo Johnson administration, jointly funded federal and uh, state health insurance program for uh, low-income uh, people. So uh, there you go. Uh, I would now like to uh, welcome our our guest, um, Libby Watson, who is a journalist and author of Sick Note, which is a newsletter about American health care. Libby, welcome. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so Libby, you are concerned about what's going to happen. I I think a lot of people you hear about the the ending of the federal health emergency, and they have no idea how this will impact some of the most vulnerable people in this country, in particular how it will impact Medicaid. Tell us your concerns. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right that this is happening sort of under the radar, um, which is remarkable given the extent of the impact that this might have. And specifically, I wrote about um, the impact this will have on on Medicaid recipients. So uh, since the start of the federal public health emergency, uh, Medicaid programs in all 50 states have had a pause on what they call redeterminations. Um, And that's a sort of technical term for the process whereby states uh, ask people to uh, recertify their income. They can sometimes do it without contacting recipients, but basically they check to see whether uh, the recipient is still low income enough uh, to qualify for Medicaid. Um, And so this is something that usually goes on all the time. Uh, But since the start of the pandemic, they paused that process in exchange for uh, a 6% bump in funding from the federal government. Um, and so uh, I don't think anybody expected the, the pandemic to last so long. I think it's sort of an indication of how temporary people thought it would be that it was actually the Trump administration that had put this into effect. Um, and so uh, because of this, um, this situation where there is a bump in funding in exchange for not disenrolling people, um, that creates a very perverse incentive. So once the public health emergency is declared over, states have a long time, they have a year, to restart this process of uh, redetermining people's income and disenrolling people if they no longer qualify. But the extra funding that they get from the federal government to pay for all of these extra enrollees that normally wouldn't be on the program, people who are you know, ineligible for the program, that funding disappears after just 60 days. And so states are faced with this situation where if they, you know, if they want to take long enough to do this job properly and make sure they're not disenrolling people too quickly, for example, disenrolling people just because they haven't responded to the mail in time and things like that, um, they have this incentive to do it as quickly and kind of as sloppily as possible um, because the funding is going to run out. And as we know, you know, states have to balance their budgets in a way that the federal government doesn't. Um, so there's this very tricky situation where, you know, even if states do want to take their time and do it properly, uh, they have this budgetary incentive to not do it properly. And then, of course, there are some states where existing um, governments just don't really value Medicaid or Medicaid recipients' lives. Yeah. And, you know, during the pandemic, I mean, with this measure in, in place, this uh, federal health emergency, um, the roles of Medicaid uh, went up, uh, according to the Washington Post, by 22 percent. Um, you know, that's impacting. Um, and right now, at least of, as of a fall of last year, there were 78 million people, you know, on Medicaid. And I think a lot of people really won't know what hit them. I mean, advocates are concerned about people being thrown off who really should not uh, be thrown off. And, you know, then there really is the cost of, of, of insurance because you have so many other people, um, additional people who are now insured because of, of, of this emergency and now who are left, you know, who knows what's going to what's going to happen uh, to them. So, 
you know, also states seem to be approaching this, you know, a little bit differently. Uh, California seems to be a bit more uh, generous or at least trying to put uh, measures in place that will help uh, with this transition, but not so much in in, in other states. And people also not realizing that in a state like Utah, for example, with under the, the health care program for children, uh, 40% of, of children on chip were dropped. So this is, is really a, a crisis here. Uh, Libby. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the Urban Institute did a study last September, and they estimated that 15 million people will lose Medicaid when the public health emergency ends. Um, but, you know, I mean, the experience in Utah where, you know, those children lost that coverage sort of practically overnight, um, you know, when, uh, when these requirements changed, uh, is, is very, very concerning. Um, and you're absolutely right that it is, it is really going to depend on how states approach this. You know, I mean, like you say, California, say like California, um, which, you know, does have sort of budgetary room uh, to, you know, to do things like this and also, you know, like a unified democratic control. Um, that's a very different experience than somewhere, you know, maybe like Texas, where, you know, already in Texas, if you get a letter from, if you're a Medicaid recipient and you get a letter from, from the state saying that you need to uh, provide documentation uh, to, to show that you still you know, uh, earn a low enough amount to qualify for Medicaid, um, you only have 10 days to respond to that piece of mail um, before they'll cut your Medicaid off, which is just, an, you know, an absurdly low amount of time. Um, and so, you know, states have quite a lot of leeway in how they how they run their Medicaid programs. Um, and so a lot of factors are going to go into, you know, determining how individual states are going to run this. You know, they're Budgetary pressures is one of them, um, you know, just the ideology of the people in charge. Um, but, you know, another concerning factor that I talked about in my piece is uh, the role of contractors. There are already a couple states that have contracted with uh, private consulting firms to, uh, quote unquote, help them figure out this, this process of beginning redeterminations again. Um, and so in New Hampshire, for example, um, they spent $2 million on a contract with Maximus, which is a notoriously oh uh, bad <laughs> call yes. center firm that provides, um, you know, call center support to state, you know, state governments and the federal government. Um, and, uh, you know, so in that state, the call center, you know, the call center workers are just going to be supporting the, uh, the, the, the state, the government staff um, in answering calls. But, of course, they can't really do all that much when they answer the phone. Um, you know, they, they can't really, they can't access anyone's Medicaid account or anything. So they're basically answering the phone and then transferring people to the government workers anyway. Um, so that's a situation where the money is just being poorly spent. But then you have a situation like Ohio. And in Ohio, the state has approved a $35 million contract with a group called Public Consulting Group. Um, and this was first reported by NBC. Um, the, the, so in the way this contract works is that the contractor is going to use things like credit reporting agencies um, to identify people that it thinks could be ineligible and then give that list to the state. And then the state will use that list to kind of target people for disenrollment. And so even though the consulting firm can't disenroll people themselves, it's kind of up to the state on how thoroughly they want to check that group's work. Uh, and the really disgusting thing about this is that public consulting group will get paid more the more 
ineligible people that they find. Um, and so it's a really bad incentive for them to, you know, if, if Ohio wants to save money and public consulting group wants to make money, you know, they have a joint interest in kind of being as sloppy as possible about identifying people who might be ineligible, knowing that lots of people who are contacted by the state will just miss the mail or not know how to respond and get disenrolled, even if they are actually eligible for Medicaid. Yeah, and you know, Libby, all of this is really connected, I, I think, to the lack of, of, of value, not only of, of the caring of people, but prioritizing other aspects of, of budgetary concerns, but also of yeah. caregivers. I was reading in that same Washington Post article, a heartbreaking story of this guy um, who has was born with cerebral palsy, has been living independently. His mother gave up her wage job in order to be able to take care of him. And she was able to do that because of the expansion that happened under Medicare, you know, with this uh, Health Emergency Act. And now they're really worried that with the ending of this, he's going to be thrown off of these expanded uh, benefits. She may have to really go and and earn an income uh, somewhere because of course, her caregiving work, taking care of her disabled son isn't recognized and she it doesn't seem to be eligible for a wage for it. And this poor guy might might end up in a home, right, as yeah. opposed to, uh, you know what I mean, in a, a home as opposed to his own home. I mean, this is yeah. this is really uh, tragic. So, you know, there's a specific impact of people with disabilities as well, uh, Libby Watson. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I know that's that's a very good point. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think the pandemic has really showed us, uh, you know, there were all these kind of, uh, um, you know, unusually dramatic changes at the start of the pandemic. Usually change in America, you know, especially for social programs, it, it's normally in the bad direction and it's often very slow. Um, at the start of the pandemic, there were all these kind of protections put into place, you know, things like the eviction ban and um, you know, stuff like this, like expanding uh, Medicaid or, or rather, um, you know, making it so that you couldn't be disenrolled from Medicaid anymore. And you know what? The world didn't end. You know, everything was fine. We stopped disenrolling people from Medicaid and everything was fine. You know, and it makes you wonder, why is this something that we do under normal circumstances? You know, why do we make people go through this process of proving their income? You know, you have situations where people who don't have an income, are being asked by the state to prove that they have no income, which is just a ridiculous proposition. You know, how do you prove a negative or whatever? Um, and, you know, we make people go through such awful, like, administrative nonsense just to have access to this meager program, you know, compared to other countries, you know, having universal health care. You know, I'm from Britain. <laughs> compared to the NHS in Britain, like, Medicaid is obviously a lifeline for a lot of people, in the U.S., and it's also often just not enough, um, you know, especially, again, when private contractors are brought in, um, you know, it's like the situation that you described, you know, um, having home health care for, uh, for people with disabilities. Um, you know, there are many situations across the country where managed care organizations have, have been brought in um, and they start doing the assessments for whether people should qualify for that kind of care and, uh, you know, they... <laughs> You know, the number of hours that they say that someone needs care is, is you know, just a fraction of what they actually uh, allow them to get under the under the under Medicaid. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a situation where 
you know, the the last couple of years have been better than than they have been before, and it's still not enough. And yet we want to get rid of that tiny little bit of progress. Just just outrageous. And just last week, the House passed a $1.5 trillion omnibus spending bill that didn't even include any of the COVID-19 uh, relief uh, funding. And uh, mm-hmm. also for our listeners, we're talking about Medicaid, which is the jointly funded federal and state health insurance uh, for needy, low-income people, as opposed to Medicare, which is the federal health insurance program in the U.S. for people who are over uh, 65 and over. Um, We're going to have to uh, watch this carefully, uh, Libby Watson. We thank you uh, for your work because, uh, you know, it's going to be important to track the impact of all of this. So we likely uh, will be back in touch with you as we continue uh, to follow this story. Thank you so very much for joining us. Libby Watson. I would love that. Happy to come on anytime. All righty. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and we are out of time. I would like to thank our board op for today. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. You're going to stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening, and you all please remember to stay safe and well. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Listen to me, get up off your knees Cause only the strong survive That's what she said Only the strong survive Only the strong survive Yeah, you gotta be strong You better hold on Don't go around with your head hung down Well, I wouldn't let the little girl know I know that you made me feel like a clown There are a whole lot of girls Looking for a good man like you Oh, but you'll never meet them If you give up now And say your life is through Then she said, oh